I know my wife and I have gotten to know many of you here at Canyon Bible Church in our almost two years here. We landed here in Prescott Valley July 2nd, 2021. But for those of you who don't know me, just a quick word to fill in a blank or two. My name is John, obviously you see that on the note sheet. I retired as pastor of a church in California after about 32 years in 2021 and wound up here in Prescott Valley. We'll be looking at how life is uncertain and indeed I would not have ever been certain that I would wind up in Arizona as a California native, but as they say, we make plans and God laughs. I am the delighted father of five children and come this October nine grandchildren. And my wife and I have been married together today for 46 years, nine months and 14 days. Well, thank you. You should really praise her and she's been the one who has put up with me. And I, but I tell people that the greatest example of grace in my life here on earth after my salvation is the gift of my wife. God, I, if I had said, God, here's what I deserve, I don't know what I would have gotten. But God was gracious. God is always gracious, even when life sometimes is uncertain. Years ago when I was in Texas, I ran a few marathons and I remember one of them running behind two people. They were side by side. I was behind them for a good part of the race. On the back of one shirt, it said, life is uncertain. On the back of the other one, eat dessert first. <laughs> that was impressed on me ever since then. But that kind of goes along with the passage from the book of Ecclesiastes where the author looks at life and wrestles with all the uncertainties, the unknowns, the perplexing things. And in chapter nine, verse 11, he said, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, time and chance happen to them all. Now we know that in God's sovereign care for us, there's no such thing as luck or chance, but from the author's perspective, as he repeated many times under the sun, that's what it seemed like. Life just was uncertain. What you expected to happen didn't happen. Well, we're going to look at a passage at the end of Mark chapter four, where it seemed like everything was set. A nice little boat ride across the lake. Everything was fine. Jesus was in the boat. What could possibly go wrong? If you want to turn to Mark chapter four in your Bibles, I want to read that passage just to set it in our minds. Mark chapter four, Jesus directs his, by his disciples to get into a boat. They're going to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, a journey of roughly about five miles. And we read in verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Life is uncertain. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. 
He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Heavenly Father, how wonderful it would be if we obeyed as readily as the wind and the sea. Help us this morning, though, to obey your call to us to give heed to this passage of Scripture, to take to heart what it says about our Savior, who he is, even in the midst of life's uncertainties. In Jesus' name, amen. Life, indeed, if you're looking at your outline, first thing, life is filled with uncertainties. Three years ago, I don't think I would have imagined myself moving and retiring in Prescott Valley, Arizona. But God had a plan, and here we are. December 18th of 1978, United Flight 173 took off from Denver Airport for a relatively short two-hour flight to Portland, Oregon. When they approached Portland, Oregon, began making preparations for landing, the crew discovered that the right landing gear was not indicating down and locked. So they notified the tower. They began to circle somewhat southeast of Portland while they worked on the problem. They even sent a crew member back into the cabin to see if he could see the landing gear, what position it was in. But they knew there was going to be a delay. So for everybody on that plane who had anticipated being on the ground in Portland at about 5.15 that afternoon, who were coming back probably from visits with family and friends over Christmas, life suddenly became uncertain. When are we going to get on the ground? Well, there can be all kinds of uncertainties. Some are relatively minor, as it turns out. When I enrolled in seminary up in Portland, Oregon, we had just gotten married. We thought we had all our ducks in a row. My wife had a job with an orthodontist. I think she was making $400 a month, maybe. I mean, we were flush. <laughs> we were set. And then we got word that the seminary was doubling the cost of tuition. That at the time seemed like a major problem. But almost at the same time, President Gerald Ford signed an extension of the GI Bill. And as a veteran, the amounts that I had used up getting my bachelor's degree a few years earlier, suddenly, I think more than doubled because now I'm a married man. And for the first year, we had the additional income from that GI Bill. So that uncertainty became rather minor. When we took our, one of our son's cars to the garage to have just an oil change and have it checked over, a little Honda, I think 1980-something Honda, four-speed, that he'd driven the garage call back after they got it in there and they said, you know, did you notice that if you're sitting in the driver's seat and you look down, you can see the road? <laughs> Again, we thought that was gonna be major, it was minor. We had a car that John could use to take back to college. God worked all of that out. But there can be times when the uncertainties become rather major. Just seven weeks after I arrived at that church in 1989, all fresh, just full of enthusiasm and ready to go with that church, my mother called one Monday morning to say my father had died of a heart attack during the night. So that week was consumed with taking care of the details of preparing for a funeral, guiding my mother through that time, 
talking to my sister who was working as a nurse in Saudi Arabia, helping make plans for her return. And then on the day of the funeral, the following Friday, when we got out, I learned that a man who I'd become very close to there at the church, a man who led our music program, who'd worked on our Awana program, yes, Deward was about 80-some years old, but a wonderful guy. Deward had gone home to be with the Lord on the day of my father's funeral when he was going over to the Central Valley of California, and a car pulled out in front of him going the other way, and he died in a head-on collision. So three or four days after my father's funeral, I was sitting with his family, helping prepare them for a service for their dad. <clears throat> what kind of uncertainties affect your life? Maybe you're facing an uncertainty, a question mark about health right now. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a question about what to do purchasing a house, where to live, where to go, where to go to school. Maybe there's a relationship that's uncertain, that's a question mark. Maybe something has happened that you didn't foresee just a short time ago and now there are those question marks. Well, let's, as we lead up to that passage in Mark 4, let's consider what happened in the preceding chapters. I'm not going to go through them or read them, but consider, if you were to read those, you would see early on in the first chapter of Mark, two men sitting by the seashore taking care of their fishing business. Jesus comes along. They thought they had their life planned out. They're going to be fishermen the rest of their lives. Jesus comes up and says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Short time later, he turns from Peter and Andrew, and he finds two other brothers, James and John. Follow me. Your life is taking a change. They thought everything was set. Jesus' appearance changed things. And you read just a little further in Mark, another man named Matthew, who expected to be doing well from his tax collector business, suddenly found himself a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Those who had been afflicted with demons and thought that was their life, their lot in life, Jesus showed up, cast out the demons. He cleansed lepers who were most likely assuming that is the way I'm going to be, an outcast from society. Everywhere I go, having to shout, unclean, unclean, stay away. Jesus cleansed him. A man who was a paralytic, bedridden, was brought to a meeting that Jesus was having. People were so crowded into the house they couldn't get in. They're thinking, what are we going to do? This is kind of an uncertain situation, but they got creative. Went up to the roof, cut a hole, as you know, dropped the man down while they lowered him down. In front of Jesus, Jesus not only healed the man, he forgave his sins. He healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on a Sunday. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were standing around thinking, what's he going to do? Is he really going to dare to do something that we say is prohibited to work, as it were, on the Sabbath? Jesus told the man, stretch out his hand. He was cleansed. He was healed. You go on reading, you see how Jesus called the 12 apostles to be his followers. Then he began doing some teaching, and eventually we get up to chapter 4, and he's spent most of the day teaching and reciting, telling parables to the people who were there to help them understand truths about who he was and about the kingdom of God. And then we come down to verse 35. And he's had these men who have been following him for a time. 
perhaps themselves seeing some of the uncertainty of life. But now Jesus says, it's evening. He's had a long day. He says, let's get into the boat. We're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, just about five miles. So they get in the boat, so they left the crowd. And it says, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. They didn't take time to gather anything else from the shore. He was in the boat. They set off. And what I found interesting when I read this passage, it says, and other boats were with him. Now, in my mind, I think I expected when it said, leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, took him with them, the disciples, in the boat. And I almost expected it to say, and other boats were with them. But they were with him, Jesus. It was about him. They wanted to follow him, see more of what he was going to do. The story focused around him. So they set out on the sea, and again, what could possibly, I mean, you've got Jesus in the boat. You know, you've seen those things about if Jesus is your co-pilot, you really should let him take over and drive the car or drive the plane. Well, he's in the boat. Everything's going to be fine, right? Yeah, life is filled with uncertainties, but secondly, uncertainties can become realities, and not always in a good way. That United flight circled southeast of Portland. And I remember my parents were there. They had come up for a visit just after Christmas. We were in our little apartment, talking, enjoying the evening. And all of a sudden, the lights went out. All the power went out. What had happened was the crew of that airplane became so preoccupied trying to work on that landing gear problem, they forgot one of the most essential things, simply to fly the plane and to keep an eye on the amount of fuel you have. The plane had run out of fuel. The pilot quickly radioed the airport. We were going down. We're not going to make it to the airport. And when it came down, it snagged some power lines not far from our apartment. That's what knocked out all the power. The pilot, however, by the grace of God, saw a dark patch of land because it was evening. It was in the wintertime. It was now after 6 o'clock. He saw a place where there were no lights, hopefully no homes, no people, and that's where he put the plane down. It ripped off the wings. It came to rest in a big grove of trees. Of the 189 people on board, 10 lost their lives. Two of the crew and eight passengers, but 179 survived, some with injuries. But I remember there were people on both sides of where that plane came down who were part of our church because our church was less than a block away. They were taking people off the plane into their homes to provide comfort, to try to take care of some of the wounded, to do whatever they could. That uncertainty of when are we going to get on the ground quickly became a reality and not in the way they had planned. A great windstorm arose, it says in verse 37, just like that. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. That Use of the word great is the first of three times we'll see that in this passage. And in the Greek language, it's the word mega. We're familiar with that. Mega this, mega that. Big, large, imposing. It was a great windstorm. I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but from what I've read, from reading accounts of people who have, where it's located with hills surrounding it makes it many times susceptible to sudden windstorms. The winds will come in off the Mediterranean, waft over those hills and suddenly come down some of the valleys and the areas over those mountains and hit that lake almost without warning. 
creating a huge storm. It's usually calm during the night and early part of the day, but late afternoons, that's when Jesus set out after a day of teaching. It can suddenly, without warning, become very treacherous. It's interesting as we look at this account, you get the sense that this was given by an eyewitness. Somebody who knew, for example, that they took Jesus in the boat with them, just as he was. They set out and there was a storm. We'll see later Jesus was in the back of the boat, resting, sleeping on a cushion. All of these things are not just a general story, but details, most likely from an eyewitness, most likely that Peter later told to Mark when Mark wrote down this account. I did come across one account of a man, I don't know his first name and I don't know what he was a doctor of, but it said Dr. Buchanan experienced one of these sudden storms on Galilee. While gazing on the scenery around us, our earliest conversation was suddenly disturbed by a movement among our Arab crew. All at once they pulled in their oars, raised their mast, and began to hoist their long and very ragged sail. What can the fellows mean to do with a sail in a dead calm? But they were right. There comes the breeze, rippling and roughening the lately glassy surface of the lake. It reaches us before the sail is even completely set. A few minutes more and it's blowing hard. The bending and oft-spliced yard arm threatens to give way, and the tattered leech of the sail seems as if it would rend, rend right up and go away in shreds. To go upon a wind with such a craft is impossible. There's nothing for it but to slack away and run before it. Where are we going now? I asked the crew. That was our first inquiry when they began to get the boat a little bit into shape. Wherever the wind will take us, was the reply of the old gray beard at the helm. And away we went, the lake now all tossed into waves, covered with foaming whiteheads, as if a demon had got into its lately tranquil bosom. An adventure that afforded us a fresh illustration of the reality of those events which the narratives of scripture relate. It's interesting too, Jewish people at that time and others understood the sea to be a place of chaos. A sea, some believed, where God and Satan did battle. And when these storms would arise, they believed that was the conflict between good and evil. It's interesting, too, in Revelation 13, that the beast who comes up in the end times comes where? Beginning of Revelation 13, from the sea. When has life, the uncertainty of life, become a reality for you? You thought everything was going smoothly and all of a sudden there comes the storm. The wind begins to blow, change begins to happen, and sometimes you feel like you have no control over it. Life indeed is uncertain and sometimes that uncertainty rises up to a reality that smacks you right in the face. The car that we are still driving, that magnificent 1995 Ford Crown Victoria, the car my sister calls the cop car, was sold to us at an almost dirt cheap price over 20 years ago by a couple who had been longtime friends of my parents. The husband called me one day and said, if you could use this car, and indeed we could, the one we were driving, the one Catherine was driving, was not in the best of shape. He said, come on over, I want to talk to you about it. When I got over there, I found out that this man, he and his wife had been part of the church that I grew up in. They'd served in that church. 
We'd had dinner at their home, they had ours, they were longtime friends of my parents and myself. He had just learned that he had cancer. And the diagnosis was that he had about six weeks to live. And indeed, in just six or seven weeks, I was officiating at his funeral. Life and that uncertainty can become very, very real. Back in 2020, I was still at the church. Things were going great. We thought everything was fine, going smooth. And then there was this virus that showed up. And there was first Sunday, we didn't even meet. We didn't know what to do. The next Sunday, we did not open the church, but I found myself preaching on Facebook Messenger by using my cell phone to prop it up on a table in the church. If you ever tried that, it's a very interesting experience. Then we eventually moved on to a laptop and I preached to that. And eventually we got to where we could go outside and things began to smooth out, but nobody saw that coming. Life changed in a, just like that. For us, life could have changed even more dramatically when that plane came down. If it had gone another hundred yards, it would have been in the middle of our living room in our apartment. I think back on that oftentimes. To me, to my family, God was gracious. My mother used to say sometimes after she became of an age, she lived to be almost 103, and there'd be times after church when I would call her or I might see her the next day, and she'd look at me and say, John, how was church really? I got the feeling she wanted to know, you know, don't, don't just put a shine on it. Are the finances doing okay? Are, are people still coming? Is the, has the board turned on you? You know, I don't know why she would have thought any of those things. But that, how are things at church, really? Give me the nitty-gritty truth. And I thought about that in this passage. When life is uncertain, who is Jesus, really? Who is he to us, really? And who is he, really and truly? In a few moments, we'll see the disciples asking that very question. Because thirdly, life is uncertain, but Jesus is not. Our life may go whatever way things happen, many times seemingly out of our control, but Jesus is never uncertain. Yes, he was tired from a long day of teaching. That place where he had in the back of the boat, lying on a cushion, that's typically where if you had a distinguished guest on a boat like that, that's where you would place them where all the other work could be done, the rowing, the setting of the sails, whatever needed to be done, and they wouldn't be in the way, they wouldn't be struck or injured in any way. It was an honored place. But we find that he was sleeping in the back of the boat. By the way, that's the only place in the Gospels where it mentions Jesus being asleep. If you think about it, that is a reminder again of his true and full humanity. Jesus in his human form, became tired. We know he wept. We know he hungered. We know he thirsted. Here we find that he was fatigued after all that had been going on. And he slept. Now, he must have been very tired to sleep through a storm like that. And so the disciples are looking at him, wondering what's going on. I remember my mother used to say of her mother, my grandmother Wallace, that if there was a concern in the family, something going on with a family member somewhere else, 
when my uncle Art went over to the South Pacific as a Marine during World War II and there'd be reports of a battle, my grandmother would say, you know, I'm not going to stay up all night worrying about it. That's not going to do any good. I'm going to go to sleep. She could sleep regardless of what the concern was. She wanted her rest to be able to deal with whatever came next. Jesus was tired from a long day of teaching. The interesting thing is, the disciples became tired of him sleeping as they struggled. They woke him up and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Look at this. We've got water up to maybe our ankles, our calves. The waves are tossing this ship every which way. Don't you care? You're asleep. How can you sleep? And notice they didn't address him as Lord, Master, Rabbi. They just said, teacher. What are you going to do about this? Don't you care? I don't think they doubted his ability to do something. It wasn't that they were calling on him or looking at him because they felt he had some inability to address the problem. They were looking at what they felt was his indifference. Don't you care? I remember hearing that phrase from my children when they were growing up sometimes. We wouldn't let them do certain things. We wouldn't provide money for this or that, whatever, you know, in their best interest. But there would be times when they'd say, you don't care. Oh, yes, we do. That's why we're looking out for your best interests. And indeed, Jesus cared. Remember, if you go back to chapter 2, when they were going through a field of grain, with his, he was going through with his disciples, and they were hungry. And they began plucking some of the grain off to eat it. And the Pharisees saw that. Horror of horrors, it was on the Sabbath. Boy, those Pharisees were watchdogs over the Sabbath like nothing you've ever seen. They said, how come, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is unlawful? He said, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he pointed in the occasion back in 1 Samuel 21 when David needed bread for himself and his army as he was fleeing from King Saul. And he was given the, the bread from the sanctuary, from the holy place, the consecrated bread to eat. And he was not judged for that. Christ pointed the Pharisees to that occasion. Again, he says the Sabbath was made for man to give them a day of rest. It was not meant to rule over man and constrict every single little action. Teacher, don't you care? Do we ever have a tendency to blame Jesus or think he doesn't care, think that he's absent? He's asleep at the switch. He's asleep in the boat and our little boat is being tossed all over the place. Be very careful. He doesn't promise to rescue us immediately from every storm, but he indeed cares. He was not helpless, as they thought. They just thought he was heedless. He didn't care about what was going on. They didn't doubt his ability, but they doubted indeed, apparently, his attentiveness to their situation. More irony here. The disciples themselves later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is facing the cross, that's going to happen to him. And he goes away to pray. And what does he tell them? Watch and pray. And he comes back. And what are they doing? They fell asleep. He goes away again. He comes back. Guess what they're doing? Again, slumber took over. 
the irony there is just stark. They think Jesus doesn't care because he fell asleep in the boat. Jesus wants them to watch when he's facing the greatest trial of his life. And they fell asleep. Life is uncertain. We are uncertain many times. Jesus is never uncertain. Just for this occasion, I took the time to go to my barber this past Friday, and I got a haircut. My barber in California used to charge me extra because he said, I've got to hunt for him before I can cut him. But my barber, very sweetly, she's a Christian. We have wonderful conversations about the Lord, about scripture, just all kinds of things as she's cutting my hair. She just recently, I found out this week, began taking appointments. It used to be that you had to call her early in the morning and see what times were available. And when I called her earlier last week, she said, you know, if you want to make an appointment, you can. So I did. Wouldn't you know when I get in there, we're talking, and I said, how's that thing going with the appointment? She said, I've already had one no-show today. We, many times, are uncertain and undependable. That is not the case with Jesus. But we do need to trust both his ability and his timing for the way things work out. How many times have we been spiritually asleep? Maybe we didn't seize the opportunity that the Lord or Jesus gave us to speak out for him to say the right word at the right time to somebody, whether it's a word of comfort, a word about the gospel, a word of witness. Were we asleep and became worried because we kind of forgot that Jesus indeed cares and we think maybe he doesn't, that somehow he's just missed what's going on in our lives? Or have we been tempted to or fallen victim to the temptation of acting dishonestly? because we fear that God couldn't provide for us. The only choice I have is to bend the rules, whether it's taxes, business at work, whatever the dealing is. We need to trust both his ability and his timing. Yeah, Jesus was tired, and the disciples were tired of him sleeping. But when they woke him up, he was certainly not too tired to calm the sea. He spoke in verse 39 when he awoke, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a, and here's the second use of that word mega, a great calm. Just like that. Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It is God who can do that. And as we saw Jesus sleeping to be a reminder of his humanity, I believe here we see him calming the sea, clearly a reminder, a point of his divinity. That is what Yahweh, what God does, what he can do. Jesus was not too tired to care for his disciples on this occasion. He also never tires of teaching his disciples them then and us today, sometimes with a rebuke. When he said to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He didn't say, do you not have any faith, but you still just not have the faith you should have. You've been with me for a time. You've seen what I've done, the cleansing of lepers, the driving out of demons, the healing of people, the teaching. 
Has not your faith grown even a little bit during that time? Why are you so afraid? And the word he uses there for afraid is not the more common word we see in the New Testament. But this is a word that has the idea of being cowardly. Wanting maybe not even to engage in the contest, just being terrified for your life. And he says, why are you so afraid? The disciples were scared, yet Jesus slept. The disciples rebuke Jesus, yet Jesus responded. The disciples panicked, yet Jesus arises and speaks peace that calmed the sea. He expected more mature faith from these men, even by this time, even though he had more ministry to go. Is your faith maturing? Is it growing? If we had some kind of a gauge, you know, something that we could attach to our brain or stick in our arm that measured the level of our faith. And if we had done that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, and then did it today, where would the level of your faith, of my faith be? Would it show that it's become deeper, stronger, more securely locked into who Jesus Christ is? Or would it just be kind of flatlined? Perhaps our faith needs testing, as James said in James chapter 1, that because the testing of our faith does what? Through those trials, the testing builds steadfastness, which ultimately leads to maturity to a faith that grows, that becomes fuller and deeper. I remember years ago when I was delivering the newspaper as a 12 or 13 year old boy, it was a rainy day, my dad took me on my paper route so I wouldn't have to ride my bike and get soaked in the rain. And there was one doctor's house we had to deliver a paper to, had to go up a long driveway and then I tossed the paper out the window and then we're coming back down the hill, it was relatively steep. And as we neared the bottom of the hill where there was either a sharp right turn to the road or a grove of trees, my dad just seemed to be letting the car pick up speed. And you know, I wanted to be a brave 12 or 13 year old and trust dad, but I'll never forget. As we got closer and closer to those trees, my faith in my dad began to diminish and the panic began to rise and I said, hit the brakes! Well. Of course, Dad hit the brakes. He was going to do that all the time. Where was my faith in my Father? Where is my faith in my Heavenly Father? Do I panic? Or do I find the peace in Him that I need to have? Maybe sometimes we just need to remember the past, reminders of God's faithfulness. I do that sometimes with Catherine and I. From that job she had, earning a few measly farthings at that orthodontist office, to when the tuition doubled, to everything else we've been through in life, finances, health things, family issues, loss, gain, whatever it might be. And I look back and I see God's faithfulness again and again and again and again. Did I always respond just perfectly like the true saint that I should be? No. But I look back at those times and it's an encouragement. What we find as we get to this last verse is really, I believe, where the focus of this passage is. Because the focus really is less upon the rescue of the disciples and more upon the person of Jesus. So therefore, I need to be certain I know who Jesus really is. So as my mother might have said, who is Jesus really? 
Well, I came across one man's comment on this passage, David Garland, who was writing on the book of Mark. And on this passage, he said, the miracle of the storm does not teach us how to endure adversity patiently because Jesus immediately eliminates the problem. Many of us here this morning know there's a problem and Jesus still hasn't eliminated it from our lives. The emphasis in this story is on who Jesus is, not on how he rescues fretful disciples from danger whenever they cry out to him. One cannot expect a miraculous intervention that will calm all the storms in life. Storms are a part of life from which none of us escapes. There are no stormless seas, and all sailors must learn that the journey is uncertain. Chaos hits our lives, and it can all happen so quickly. One moment, all is well, and the next, it's not. Christianity is not simply a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of the world. Some may be too cowardly to get into the boat in the first place. Others may wish they'd never embarked and want to retreat to the safety of the shore. But guess what happened when they got across the shore to the other side of Galilee? You look at Mark chapter 5, verse 2. Here comes a demon-possessed man roaring out of a cave, confronting them. So strong that when the people of the town had tried to bind him with chains, he'd break the chains. So they get out of one storm, and there's another one, just like that. There are no safe places or safe spaces in life and one can only find security with Jesus and a serenity that this world does not know and cannot give. So who is Jesus really? He's the one to be feared, revered, and respected. They were filled, it says here in verse 41, with a mega, a great fear. The kind of fear that causes one to shrink back and say, whoa. What is that? I need to keep my distance. There was a great storm, then there was a great calm, then there was a great fear. And while Jesus asked the disciples, why are you afraid? Why are you acting as cowards? Here, they had a fear that comes from the word which we get our English word from, phobia. And it says literally, they feared a great fear. The storm's gone. They're not fearing the storm. They're looking at Jesus saying, he just stood up and spoke. And like that, it was calm. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves answer his command? You think of phobias. I don't know what kind of things frighten you. There are a ton of phobias out there in the world. Agoraphobia is the fear of crowds or even open spaces. Arachibutrophobia is the fear of peanut butter. Arachnophobia, of course, is the fear of spiders. Baraphobia is the fear of gravity. Nomophobia, and probably most of us here at one time or another have suffered from this fear. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your cell phone. I mean, mine is down there on the, on the chair. I'm like 30 feet from it. I'm a little nervous, you know, right now. Ephibophobia is the fear, no offense now, ephibophobia is the fear of teenagers. Geniophobia is the fear of knees. Microphobia is the fear of small things. And macrophobia, I'm sorry, megalophobia is the fear of large things. 
Think about those last two terms. The storm, really in this picture, is a relatively small thing. Jesus dealt with that. Where the disciples had a megalophobia was that Jesus, who is this man? Look what he can do. He is the one to be feared, revered, and respected because secondly, he's a man like no other. Not at all. Matthew 28. What did he say to his disciples? All authority in heaven and earth. All. Not some, not most, not a big portion of it. All authority has been given to me. John 14, 6. I am one of the many... No, no. I am the way, the truth, the life. Philippians 2.10. It's at his name that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, even under the earth. Who is this man? How well do I understand who he is? Something about him the disciples had not experienced yet. The implied answer to that question might be, he is the strong, eternal son of God. Also, he's the one whom we should fear more than any storm in life. Those three megas, great storm, great calm, and then the great fear, and I think ultimately turned into reverence for him, of Jesus Christ himself. Life is uncertain. Jesus is not. I don't know what uncertainties we're going to be struck with today. Just 20 years ago, last month, there was a joyous occasion toward the end of the month of May when our older son was going to receive his bachelor's degree from Biola University, and I was going to receive a degree the previous night from Talbot School of Theology. We had the family there. There were some people from our church who came. It was a great time. We had meals together, just rejoicing. Boy, I was set to go. Go back to our church, have a wonderful time. And it was only about four or five months later that in the fall of 2003, I kept having to clear my throat. And my voice got hoarse, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I went to a doctor. He said, oh, you've got reflux. Take these pills. I want to tell you, those pills were not cheap. That didn't do anything. Three months later, I was in the OR. They did a biopsy. He said, still can't figure it out. He sent me to a doctor in San Francisco. I'll tell you that story another time, but picture Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future, okay? <laughs> that didn't solve anything. Finally, by the grace of God, my local doctor where we live sent me down to a doctor at UCLA, the chief of the head and neck surgery department at UCLA, he diagnosed me, again, with reflux. When that didn't solve the problem, he diagnosed me with something else. They kept looking and looking and looking. Finally, a year and a half later, actually over a year and a half, they did another biopsy in my throat and found something called amyloidosis. I can tell you about that another time. Depending on where it lands in your body, it can be fatal. In mine, I don't know if it was God's sense of humor in some way. I think it was more him saying, look, you're going to be afflicted with this, but I will get you through it. That's going to be a storm, but trust me. I had treatments. I had laser surgeries on my vocal cords. I had Botox injections into my vocal cords. That was it. I've got the best-looking, wrinkle-free vocal cords you could ever imagine in your life. But I tell you, 20 years ago, I could sing bass or baritone. <clears throat> now my range has shrunk. If you talk to me out in the 
foyer after the service or in a crowd of people, you may notice I have, you have a hard time hearing me because my voice doesn't have the projection it used to. Thank God for microphones. I don't have the range I used to, but God saw me through that storm. But I never saw that coming. I thought, boy, my son and I had a great time. We're going to go back, preach, do wonderful things. It's hard in my work as a little league and softball umpire when all you can do is say, you're out. You know, the crowd, the players can't even hear you. But you know, even though God saw me through that, he allowed me to continue ministering and doing pretty much everything I need to do. And in my case, the ailment was just localized to my vocal cords. I don't even take any medications for it. So in so many ways, God was good. But the worst storms may be yet to come for you, for me. Whether it's something about the economy, whether it's the way all the issues about sex and gender continue to press in and surround the church and create issues that we need to address, whether it's racial issues, whether it's even attacks on the church that are political or even physical in some cases. Whatever it is, we need to remember to lift our eyes from that storm around us and fix them on the one who sits enthroned in heaven. Our life was never promised to be filled with perfection all the way along. Jesus told us in this world we're going to have troubles. But our omnipotent Savior and King, who sits at God's right hand, cares about us. And ultimately, the most important thing is he is the Savior. This world indeed, we mentioned this at our K group last night, we're just passing through. What can man do to me truly in this life? Kill me? <laughs> then I go to be with the Lord. I've had people tell me that. Not that they wanted to be killed, but they would say, you know, whatever happens, you might think is the worst case scenario, I get to be with the Lord. No matter what storms may shake us in this life, keep in mind, life is indeed uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen when I walk out that door today. Life is uncertain, but Jesus is not. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth from your word. We are frail, fragile, broken, and so often fearful human beings. You have created us with our strengths, our weaknesses. You know us inside and out. You know how we react to things. But help us, whatever confronts us next, to look to you and whether or not the storm fades immediately, whether it ever fades, may we have that sense of wonder and awe as did the disciples to say, who are you? Who is this really? I'm getting a fresh vision and glimpse of you with every passing day. Help us to come to know you better, obey you better, and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.